And now, here is Walter Bingham. Hello and welcome to the program for August 30th, 2022, which we count in the Jewish calendar as the 3rd of Elul, 5782. I am Walter Bingham and once again bring you reports about recent events as I saw them. We are living in an extraordinary and unstable period of world history. Both in Israel and in the United States, election fever has gripped the population because next November is the month when the history of these countries and even the world may change. The U.S. midterm elections are expected to alter the composition of both houses of Congress to a Republican majority that will no longer endorse the damaging policies of the current incumbent of the Oval Office. In Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu has a court case hanging over his head while aspiring to return to his former prime ministerial residence. In America, there are voices calling to prevent President Biden to stand for a second term in 2024 for medical reasons, and here, the political left advocate against Netanyahu's candidacy for prime minister because he is an indicted defendant. Even in the UK, there is excitement because there are two final contenders for prime minister following the resignation of Boris Johnson. Both are from the Conservative Party, and it will be their membership that decides by ballot in a few days who shall be the next resident of number 10 Downing Street. The difference between the two contenders is mainly how to deal with the economy. Both have expressed support for Israel. The Western world's empathy for the claims of the Arabs in Israel to establish a Palestinian state has suffered a blow when the chairman of the PA, the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, showed his real colours. At a press conference with the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz on the premises of the Chancellery, Abbas, when asked if he will apologise for the Munich Olympic terrorist massacre of 1972 that was committed for the cause of Palestine and is commemorated in two weeks, he stunned Scholz by claiming that Israel committed 50 holocausts on the Palestinian people. The Chancellor's embarrassment was apparent because that term is very sensitive in Germany. In a tweet, Chancellor Scholz wrote, Any relativization of the singularity of the Holocaust is intolerable and unacceptable. I am disgusted by the outrageous remarks made by Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas. He commented that Abbas had diminished the singularity of the Holocaust in which Nazi Germany murdered over six million Jews. But Scholz drew criticism from the International Auschwitz Committee that said it was astonishing and disconcerting that the German Chancellor allowed the Palestinian leader's comments on the Holocaust to go unchallenged during the press conference. However, it was reported that the moderator moved on very quickly. 
Berlin police are investigating whether charges can be filed against Abbas for comments made in Germany that violated the country's hate speech laws. In Israel, both Defense Minister Benny Gantz and turncoat Matan Kahana stated without shame that they believe it necessary to meet with Mahmoud Abbas if it is in the interests of our security. What a terrible state of affairs if our Minister of Defense believes that the security of Israel could depend on a Holocaust denier Abbas. It is not surprising that after many world leaders denounced Abbas's outrageous remarks, he is trying to walk them back to mitigate their impact. But whether dressed in a suit and tie or with a kefir, he and his ilk are liars who use the Palestinian-Israeli conflict to enrich themselves on the back of their deprived population from the funds donated by the US and EU, the European Union, destined to improve the lives of Arab citizens in the Palestinian Authority. The EU is the PA's largest single donor. It helps to pay the salaries of the PA's many civil servants, which constitutes a significant chunk of the West Bank economy. Between 2008 and 2020, Brussels sent around $2.5 billion in direct budget support to the PA. In 2016, the PA paid about $315 million in stipends and other benefits to the families of so-called martyrs, in other words, pay-to-slay money, from their total budget of $4.4 million, which amounts to 8%. PMW, Palestinian Media Watch, commented that it was inexcusable for donor countries to display such cavalier attitude to how their money was spent and permitting the PA to have a significant part of its expenditure under the non-transparent PLO institutions listing. I said it before and I repeat it again, while living in the present we must apply the lessons from the past and only then can we improve the future. Unfortunately, the free world has learned nothing from Einstein's famous dictum. I ask how much longer will they allow themselves to be held hostage to terrorism? We hear that also humanitarian Sweden has realized the error of accepting masses of immigration from Muslim countries. Right now, they have lots of areas referred to as Little Damascus, Little Mogadishu or Little Karachi. So even their socialist government has decided to now impose strict immigration control for fear that in the future there may be places called Little Sweden. That pattern prevails all over Europe. Under a deal signed in April between Britain and Rwanda, the UK government plans to send migrants who arrive in the UK as stowaways or in small boats to Rwanda, where their asylum claims will be processed. If successful, they will stay in the African country rather than returning to Britain. And 
I suggest that Israel should take a leaf out of Britain's book and adopt that system here, where such immigrants have committed rape and robberies, and where an area of Tel Aviv is suffering a high volume of criminal activity perpetrated by illegals from Muslim and African countries. Although it is still a long time until next Passover, and I am not the youngest around the table, I'm going to cite for you the four questions of our time. Why is Israel different from all other Western countries? All other Western countries are governed by politicians and an odd general. In Israel, it's mainly generals. All other countries vote once in four years. In Israel, we vote five times. In all other countries, the people choose their representatives. In Israel, the parties dictate. All other countries are being flooded with Muslims, but in Israel, we already have them. Now, let's find some of the answers. In many countries, it's not unusual that the military hierarchy competes with the civilian government and that their modus operandi is one of commanding disciplined ranks. Civilian governments, however dictatorial, want to give the impression of allowing the population to have freedom. So, in many cases, there are military insurrections. The generals take the reins and enrich themselves in the process at the expense of the population. The result is a rich ruling elite and an impoverished country. There are many such examples, mainly in South America and Africa. Europe has a history of absolute monarchy, a theological justification for the divine right of kings, and their subjects had no rights to limit their power, which mirrors the military pattern. Revolutions and uprisings during the 18th and mainly 19th century made absolute monarchy obsolete in Europe, except in Russia, where it lasted until 1917. Israeli generals rise through the ranks and gain the skills of tactical and strategic warfare. They have acquired the knowledge to inspire and motivate subordinates to carry out their commands. Our military leadership was particularly successful to defeat the attacks of our enemies, and to this day, all our defense forces are highly thought of and respected. But to be a successful military commander, as our generals are, and an effective civilian legislator, are, in my view, mutually exclusive. It is not in the nature of a general to govern by persuasion, to encourage the electorate to follow and approve a particular policy. That is firstly far more difficult than commanding blind obedience, and secondly, it is not the democratic way that Israel's free population expects. Unfortunately, Israel seems to have a penchant to be ruled by former chiefs of staff of the IDF, who, as I have explained, have the mindset of being commander-in-chief and not as politicians who are supposed to be the servants of the people. 
The sooner Israel will abandon the tradition of electing former generals to leading ministerial positions, the quicker it will be possible to advance to being a real democracy. We need politicians who first and foremost realize that it is the people who allow them to govern and that military rank is no automatic qualification for government. The second and third question of the four have already been discussed in my last program, and the fourth is one that is causing the most controversy, and to solve it is of paramount importance for the peaceful future of our country. Our current Minister of Transport, Merav Misaeli, head of the Labour Party, is doing a good job in finally completing the long-discussed transport infrastructure so urgently needed, and for that she is being widely commended. It seems, however, that the accolades have made her drunk into believing she is the country's infallible transport czar. That made her go one step too far. Whereas her infrastructure's improvements have already had the stamp of approval of previous governments, she is now trying to innovate new changes that offend large sections of the population. As the completion of the first stage of the Tel Aviv's light rail nears the launching date, she initiated a study to analyze the implications of operating that network on Shabbat, against Torah prohibition. She claims that a Saturday halt will harm those citizens who do not have a private car. It is our duty to reduce the gap between those two groups, Michaeli said. It started with campaigns to slacken conversion law, continued with alternate kosher certification, and now the government intends to cancel the prohibition of public transport on Shabbat that existed since the establishment of the state. But Mishaeli insists that, quote, today more of the Israeli public needs transportation during the weekend and wants it, and it is our duty to make it happen. Well, many of the Israeli public want bacon and egg kiosks, Shall we, God forbid, soon see those on our streets? Much of Israel's political left-wing public nevertheless believe in the sanctity of Shabbat. Let them think carefully before they vote on November the 1st. Anyway, I was under the impression that following the declaration date for a general election, the government is simply a caretaker and as such not permitted to change or introduce laws. I invite listeners to correct me if I'm wrong. In a brilliant piece in the Jerusalem Post, Hussein Abdul Hussein, a research fellow of the Washington-based Foundation for Defense of Democracy, exposes the double talk of the Qatari Foreign Ministry spokesman Majed al-Ansari and how that is echoed by the Arabic-speaking channel of the Al Jazeera network. While Qatar, based in the glory of having been instrumental in brokering an end to the recent hostilities between the PIJ, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and Israel, Ansari spoke of Israel's aggression and the invasion of Al-Aqsa, the Arabic name for the mosque on the Temple Mount. 
Al Jazeera in Arabic broadcast all of Ansari's references to Israel's attack and ended with a lie of the massacre of five Arab children in the Jabalia refugee camp. Although Israel released footage of a rocket fired from Gaza that fell short and exploded in Jabalia, yet Al Jazeera ignored it. Interestingly, when their English-speaking network played clips of Ansari's interview, they omitted the denunciation of Israel, but accentuated Qatar's involvement as peacemakers in the recent PIJ-Israel conflict and, of course, the Jabalia incident. Qatar and its mouthpiece, Al Jazeera, speak from both sides of their mouth. Probably the most important investment for our future, apart from security expenditure, is the education of our children. Give me a boy of five and I'll make him my man for life. That has been attributed to Hitler, Yamaxima, who proved its value. Israel's teaching staff are dissatisfied with their pay and plan to strike. Would you support them? Here is a list of average salary in the education system in Ariel, northern Israel, according to Glassdoor. It is given in US dollars. School teacher, $2,120. Headmaster of the school, 4066 University teacher, 3485 University rector, 11906 College teacher, 3078 College director, 7550 Kindergarten teacher, wait for that, $1,452. Kindergarten head, 3,630. Glassdoor lists the average salary for teachers in Tel Aviv at $9,432. Glassdoor is an American website where current and former employees anonymously review companies. Headquartered in San Francisco, California, it has additional offices in Chicago, Dublin, London and Sao Paulo. Considering that teachers have the future of our children in their hands, I find this pay totally inadequate. Teachers have to invest in a college degree, a requirement for the job, and deserve better. Although a strike is harmful in the short term and should be a last resort, we need committed career teachers and not those who use teaching as a stopgap while searching for their chosen job. If you have strong views on this subject, then write to walter at israelnewstalkradio.com where you will always get my personal reply or place your comments at the appropriate place on the Walter Bingham file page of our website. It is no secret that Israel is the main power that advocates, nay, pushes against returning to a deal with Iran after the 2015 Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, proved ineffective. But all the experts' evidence provided by Israel and the excellent presentation of former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu 
are falling on the deaf ears of the U.S. President Joe Biden and his administration. Biden must remember that deals made by totalitarian regimes are not worth the paper on which they are written. In the case of Iran, any agreement would simply serve to lessen the sanctions while they still continue their oil exports to China and Russia's clients. In the not-too-distant future, the chickens will come home to roost in the U.S. In an effort to prevent the deal, U.S. Senator Ted Cruz said, quote, A year ago, Joe Biden gave Afghanistan to the Taliban. Now he intends to give a nuclear arsenal to Iran. We already know that the deal will be catastrophic to the national security of America and our allies and to the security of Americans, end of quote. In the meantime, Israel is watching keenly and is determined to act unilaterally should it discern that the Ayatollah's threats to turn Israel into ashes may turn into action. He is advised not to try, lest his threat may rebound. Every day a new poll is published telling us the state of the political parties relative to the election results. They each vary on who conducts them. I can't lay my finger on it, but it seems to me that they each have a political bias. As they are conducted by telephone, it surely depends on the area of the country that one targets. Another possibility is that the interviewee may ask who conducts the poll and will only answer if they suspect the polling organization to be the flavor of their political choice. Naturally, the poll is conducted in Hebrew and ignores anyone who does not fully understand the form of the questions, particularly in this impersonal telephone approach. To base the results on some 700 or 800 respondents is so hit and miss that it cannot be given much credence, and in my view, they all have a hidden agenda. You may not agree with me, but must admit that only one poll counts, and that is the election. Finally, the news is generally fairly depressing and does little to enhance our quality of life, unless, of course, politically, you support a suicidal policy. The events of World War II and the Holocaust have torn families asunder or totally destroyed them, so that it is refreshing to hear from time to time about never-expected family reunions. One such took place when 20 descendants of the Blach family gathered in their ancestral city of Stralsund in eastern Germany. It happened in a most unusual way when Friederike Fessner, a non-Jewish German cellist, bought a derelict old house in the main street of Stralsund. Her plan was to recreate the old character of the city and so she began to renovate the property to its old glory. While researching the past of this magnificent building, she discovered that until the Nazi era, it was Jewish property and that much of that family ended their lives in concentration camps. 
Further looking into that family's history, Fessner managed to locate descendants of the Blach family, and those connections snowballed into more than 20 people, some of whom only learned of their Jewish and Holocaust connections because of that reunion. Fessner believes that it is important to remember the other side of Germany and the events of the Holocaust. This is Walter Bingham wishing you a good and successful week. And as usual, I end with a reminder that it is as a result of the work of the older generation that you are living relatively comfortably today. You therefore have a duty of care for the elderly. Please visit your elderly neighbors and see if they are cool enough in this hot climate. How about buying a fan if needed? Goodbye.